Chapter 14 Renewers There was an age that was happier for poets. Petrarch, poet and humanist. In the week before Christmas 1431, in the great cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore in Florence, a scholar called Francesco Filelfo gave a lecture about the poetry of Dante. Several hundred high-minded Florentines came to listen. The cathedral in which they gathered was partway through its sensational renovation. At the east end, Brunelleschi's vast Duomo was coming together, and although it would be five years until it was officially finished, this would clearly be a crowning triumph for the city. Filelfo was every inch a fitting character to perform beneath it. He was one of the most exciting thinkers of his day. Educated in Pavia, he had been appointed to teach the arts in Venice at the age of just 18. He had then travelled the world, soaking up languages, reading voraciously, and immersing himself in politics. He learned Greek in Constantinople, worked as a diplomat at the court of Murad II, sultan of the rising Islamic superpower known as the Ottoman Empire, and then took postings as an ambassador to Sigismund, king of Hungary, and Vladislav II, king of Poland. Having married a minor Greek princess called Theodora, he settled back in Italy to pursue a career as a scholar, moving to Florence in the late 1420s. There, Filelfo taught rhetoric, translated classical poetry, and gave lectures at the recently established university known as the Studio, holding forth on the writers of ancient Greece and Rome. On Sundays and other Christian feast days, he declaimed in public about Dante. He could be a magnetic figure, bright, outspoken, articulate, intellectually vain, personally spiky, and obsessed with money. Filelfo was so keen on chasing women that he boasted he must have been born with three testicles. He made enemies easily, particularly among other academics, one of whom called him repulsive. Yet when Filelfo spoke, the city listened. Dante was a wildly popular subject. The great man had died 110 years earlier and was regarded in Florence as a literary demigod. His tomb actually lay in Ravenna, where he had lived after being exiled from his home city in the course of the wars between the blacks and whites. Nevertheless, passing Dante's work, and in particular the Commedia, or, as it is usually called today, the Divine Comedy, was a favourite pastime of Florentine intellectuals. Not only was the Commedia a vivid portrait of hell, purgatory and heaven, written in dancing, interlaced lines of Italian terza rima, rather than staid Latin, it was also packed with gossipy sketches of famous men and women from distant and recent history, who were judged by the poet's pen and sentenced accordingly, either to diabolical torments or the delights of paradise. This gave the Commedia, and commentary on it, considerable contemporary relevance, and no little potential for causing trouble. Relatives and descendants of many of Dante's subjects were alive and active in Florentine high society, and the poem was germane to their self-image, their worldview, and their squabbles. Famous Florentines could be praised, needled, or outright slandered through the medium of Dantean commentary. So when a master of letters, particularly one with a waspish tongue in his mouth, spoke about Dante in the city's landmark cathedral, his words mattered. In December 1431, Filelfo did not just pass textual judgment on Dante. He also used his platform to throw shade on a faction in the city, led by the 52-year-old banker Cosimo de' Medici. Since taking over running the Medici bank from his father 11 years previously, Cosimo had become one of the richest and most powerful men in Florence. He was heavily involved in planning and financing wars with nearby city-states, including Lucca and Milan. He was an instinctive and astute operator, who specialised in controlling politics from the shadows. But he was not universally liked, particularly by a conservative, oligarchic faction led by another super-wealthy Florentine, Rinaldo degli Albizzi, and one of Filelfo's patrons, Palastrozzi. In the course of Filelfo's lecture in the cathedral, the scholar made it clear whose side he was on.
He suggested, half obliquely, that the Medicians were ignorant, that they were envious of him, and that they knew nothing about Dante. He accused them of targeting him for hate and persecution, and of being behind attempts earlier in that academic year to have him permanently removed from his university teaching posts. This was fighting talk, and it would come back to haunt Filelfo. Under Cosimo's leadership, the Medici family had begun their rise not only to hegemony in Florence, but to the rank of a quasi-royal dynasty, whose sons would eventually include popes and grand dukes, and whose daughters would become queens. And although the peak of their powers lay some way off, in the first half of the 16th century, they were still dangerous people to cross. A large clan, with interests all over the city, the Medici sat at the centre of a network of Florentines known as the Amici, friends, whose members ranged from magnates and bankers to shopkeepers and the ordinary poor. This network could be mobilised for all sorts of tasks, both noble and underhand. Falling out with the Medici meant making many enemies, who, if they felt so inclined, could do a man real harm. Filelfo tasted the Amici's dark power in May 1433. This was nearly 18 months after he began his verbal attacks on the Medici and their party, and tempers had not cooled. One morning, as Filelfo walked to work at the studio, following the river Arno, along the Borgo San Jacopo, he was accosted by a thug called Filippo, who pulled a sword from his cloak and set about him. Filelfo tried to defend himself with his fists, but he was more of a writer than a fighter. The attack was not fatal, probably by design, but there was a lot of blood. With one terrifying thrust of the blade, Filelfo later wrote, his attacker succeeded not only in cutting deep, but also in almost amputating my entire right cheek and nose. Then the goon ran away. After the initial shock and the pain, Filelfo recovered, but he was marked forever with a disfiguring scar. Cosimo was never formally connected with the crime. One of Filelfo's studio colleagues was instead brought to trial by the city authorities and tortured into admitting he had paid Filippo to do the deed. But Filelfo was convinced the Medici patriarch had lain behind it. In the months following his attack, Filelfo railed against Cosimo and his friends. When political events turned against the Medici in 1433, Cosimo was accused, with some justification, of having manipulated the conduct of Florence's wars with Luca to ensure maximum profit for his bank. Filelfo was delighted. He called publicly for formal charges of treason, which could have seen Cosimo put to death, but he failed to convince the city authorities. Cosimo was convicted for offences relating to war profiteering, but merely exiled to Venice, from where he engineered a quick return to power. And when he got back to Florence in 1434, Filelfo found the game was up. Now it was he who was run out of the city. This was not the end of his career by a long chalk. He went on to enjoy distinguished postings under the Dukes of Milan, and briefly, Pope Sixtus IV, a depraved and corrupt individual, but an enthusiastic patron of the arts. He worked as a professor and court poet, and tirelessly composed tracts urging the princes of Europe to revive the spectacle of the mass crusade to deal with the Ottoman Turks. Yet he lived with the physical, reputational, and emotional scars he had earned by crossing Cosimo in the 1430s. In 1436, he tried to hire an assassin of his own to kill the Medici boss, but the plot was foiled, and it only served to ensure that, for all the fame and esteemed connections Filelfo made, he was not welcomed back to Florence for nearly 50 years. Only in 1481 did Cosimo's grandson, Lorenzo the Magnificent, invite him back to become professor of Greek at the university. By now, however, Filelfo was 83. His second posting in Dante's city lasted scarcely a heartbeat. He caught dysentery soon after arriving and was dead within two weeks. He had enjoyed an exciting and varied career, for most of which he had been the greatest Greek scholar in the Western Mediterranean. Yet his sharp tongue had cost him his looks and very nearly his life. 
The way Filelfo saw it, he was an honourable fellow who had stuck to his principles and suffered for it. Shame has not allowed me to be a parasite, he once wrote, nor have I ever learned to flatter, to adulate, or to be a yes-man. Others saw it differently. His wit was nimble, wrote one contemporary intellectual, dryly, but he knew not how to keep it in order. Today, Francesco Filelfo is not among the first names that people reach for when they think of the extraordinary intellectual and artistic world that flourished across the West in the late Middle Ages. Rightly or wrongly, his genius and scholarship have not captured the public imagination in the same way as that of some of his contemporaries, particularly the visual artists. The superstars of this age are men like Leonardo da Vinci and Sandro Botticelli, Brunelleschi and Michelangelo, Raphael and Titian, Pico della Mirandola and Machiavelli, Jan van Eyck, Rocchia van der Weyden and Albrecht Dürer. Filelfo does not belong in the first rank of these figures and maybe not even in the second. Yet there is something in his little-known story that sums up the nature of the times. From the late 14th century there flourished, first in Italy and soon afterwards beyond the Alps in northern Europe, a cultural movement known as the Renaissance. The Renaissance, literally rebirth, was a time in which creative people discovered new or lost approaches to literature, the arts and architecture. From these there also sprang novel theories of political philosophy, natural science, medicine and anatomy. The Renaissance saw revived and intense interest in the glories of ancient Greek and Roman culture, rapid technical advances in painting and sculpture, and the dissemination of new ideas about matters such as education and statecraft. Great public art transformed cityscapes. Portraiture gifted politicians with new propaganda tools. The Renaissance rolled and developed across many generations. In the longest historical analysis, it was still going in the early 17th century. Crucially, right from the start, some of those who lived through the period recognised they were living in a new age. Among the first to state it was Leonardo Bruni, who wrote an epic, History of the Florentine People, in which he identified the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century as the end of one great age, and his own times in the early 15th century as the culmination of a long road back to civilization. This notion still underpins our sense of the boundaries of the Middle Ages, as the scope of books like this one shows. The Renaissance was a time when genius and geniuses were unleashed, but patrons mattered as much as auteurs. Art and invention were tightly interwoven with money, power and the ambitions of princes. Clever and creative people flocked to the wealthy to fund their endeavours, while the mighty threw their weight behind artists to help them emphasise their own good taste and the civic sophistication of their home cities. So for every Filelfo there was a Cosimo, each capable of elevating and thwarting the other in roughly equal measure. For centuries people have looked back at the Renaissance and seen it as an epochal cultural term which marks the boundaries between the Middle Ages and modernity. Today, however, some historians dislike the term, on the grounds that it implies a dearth of invention or any transformations in thought during the centuries that preceded it. Others still have decided to co-opt and dilute the term Renaissance by applying it to earlier moments in the Middle Ages. We have already encountered the 12th century Renaissance on our journey to this point. So be it. The fact remains that whether we like the term Renaissance or not, it would be a brave or foolish person who denied that the 15th century in particular saw a groundswell of cultural and intellectual endeavour which produced some of the most famous works of art and literature in human history under the patronage of magnificent, if often rather grubby, customers. So it is to this age that we will now address our thoughts as we look at the artistic, and humanistic explosion of the late Middle Ages, along with the occasionally bloody shenanigans that underpinned it. The First Humanist 
On Good Friday in 1327, 104 years before Filelfo fell out with Cosimo de' Medici, the young poet and diplomat Francesco Petrarca went to church in the papal city of Avignon. As he later told the story, it was there, on the most solemn day in the whole Christian calendar, that he first clapped eyes on a woman called Laura. She was probably, but not definitely, Laura de Novis, recently married to the nobleman Count Hugh de Sade. Age 17, Laura de Novis was scarcely out of adolescence, though this was fairly normal for 14th century brides. Six years older, Petrarca, or Petrarch, as he is known today in English, was captivated by her. The attraction was partly physical. A posthumous and partly imagined portrait of Laura de Noves, kept in the Laurentian Library in Florence, shows a pretty woman with a thin, elegant nose, round eyes beneath high-arched brows, and a small mouth and chin. But her physical beauty was not everything. Petrarch wrote that when Laura shone the rays of her lovely eyes on him, she created thoughts of love, action, and words. In a chaste, platonic relationship which began soon after, Laura became his muse. Over the course of his long life, and her short one, Petrarch would write hundreds of poems about and to her. Like Dante, Petrarch wrote most of his best poetry in Italian rather than Latin. He also perfected the 14-line poetic form of the sonnet. Petrarch did not create the sonnet. If it was ever definitively invented, then it came from the Sicilian court of Frederick II Hohenstaufen during the early 13th century. But he moulded it and mastered it to such an extent that the Petrarchan sonnet is now a staple of Italian poetry just as the later Shakespearean sonnet is in English. Petrarch's subject matter in his sonnets and other early poetry was more than just romantic love for an unattainable woman. He also used his adoration for Laura as the leaping-off point for an investigation into the mysteries, pleasures and sorrows of human life itself. For nearly 1,000 years in the West, the standard framework used for discussing these themes had been the contemplation of Christ and his passion. Now Petrarch stood the traditional model on its head. He was unquestionably a pious Christian. Indeed, he was officially a clergyman. Yet he found the sublime in the individual and not the other way around. He imbued the emotional and interior life of one person with infinite significance and a power to reveal higher truth. Everything still led back to God, but the route was radically different, and Petrarch's approach would come to lie at the core of an overarching aesthetic and moral philosophy known as humanism, which drove the achievements of the Renaissance. Future generations looked on him as the first of the humanists. In the 14th century, it did not take long for Petrarch to make a name for himself. He was a beautiful writer, an enthusiastic correspondent, and an irrepressible traveller. When he was a teenager, he had rejected his father's advice to settle down and train as a lawyer, knowing already that he wanted to spend his days wandering the world, reading and writing, rather than sitting at his desk in Bologna filing legal briefs and in the years after he first encountered Laura, he indulged this wanderlust. In the 1330s, he roamed the cities of France, the German Empire, Flanders and the Low Countries, keeping an eye out all the while for scholars to consult and libraries where he could read manuscripts copied from classical sources. He returned regularly to the closest thing he had to a home, a tiny secluded village called Vaucluse hidden in a valley 30 kilometres east of Avignon. But he never fully settled there. The world, with all its natural splendour, its great buildings and its books, was a source of irresistible inspiration. In 1337, he visited Rome, and, while touring the ruins of the imperial capital, became obsessed with stories of the Punic Wars. After this, he began writing, in Latin rather than Italian, a long epic poem called Africa, narrating the Second Punic War 
of 218 to 201 BC, when Hannibal of Carthage had eventually been bested by Scipio Africanus. Africa eventually ran to nine books and nearly 7,000 lines, although Petrarch never considered it finished and would not allow it to be widely circulated while he lived. By and by his fame grew. So did his circle of powerful friends. In the first half of his career, Petrarch worked for Cardinal Giovanni Colonna, a member of the powerful Roman noble dynasty, whom Petrarch described in a sonnet as Glorious Colonna. He always moved in high places thereafter. One of his most famous patrons was Robert of Anjou, King of Naples, reigned 1309-43, who harboured ambitions to be the preeminent ruler in Italy and understood acutely the value of projecting might by associating with the leading artists and writers of his day. In 1341, Robert made Petrarch a tantalising offer. Come to Rome and be crowned Poet Laureate, an ancient title revived specifically to recognise his brilliance. Petrarch accepted, adding only the flattering condition that King Robert should subject him to a three-day viva voce in his palace to make sure he was up to scratch. Robert was tickled pink, and having passed his examination, Petrarch was crowned with a laurel wreath on the Capitoline Hill at Easter 1341. It was a ceremony layered with meaning, the ruins of the eternal city suggesting both the collapse of an old world and the impending resurrection of the spirit of the ancients. In his coronation oration, Petrarch sang effusive praises to the Romans. Quoting Lucan, he told his audience, The task of the poet is sacred and great. He went on. There was an age that was happier for poets, an age when they were held in the highest honour, first in Greece and then in Italy, and especially when Caesar Augustus held imperial sway, under whom there flourished excellent poets, Virgil, Varus, Ovid, Horace, and many others. But today, as you well know, all this has changed. Poetry, he argued, had been devalued. Yet poets were able to reveal through their words truths as deep as any of those mined from scripture by theologians, if only their audience would recognise it. As Petrarch put it, Poets under the veil of fictions have set forth truths physical, moral and historical. The difference between a poet on the one hand and a historian or a moral or physical philosopher on the other is the same as the difference between a clouded sky and a clear sky, since in each case the same light exists in the object of vision, but is perceived in different degrees according to the capacity of the observers. Petrarch's blistering defence of verse and his wider claim for art as a lens through which to spy the divine was stirring and challenging in the 1340s. It would take two centuries for his insights to be fully unpacked by writers, artists and thinkers across the West but his coronation oration eventually came to be seen as a manifesto for the entire Renaissance. Petrarch's life, following his coronation in Rome, could be read in retrospect as a model for the new intellectual and cultural world of the Renaissance, which burst into life at the end of the Middle Ages. As we have already seen, Petrarch was spared by the Black Death in 1348, but his beloved Laura was not and nor were many of his friends. As he grew older, he became lonelier and became more religious. In 1350, he decided to set aside as much worldly pleasure as possible and devote himself to a more reclusive existence of contemplation and study. Yet like all the greatest medieval minds, Petrarch realised that to immerse himself in Christian thought did not necessarily imply abandonment of the classics. Through his travels and his work, he had amassed one of the greatest private book collections in Europe, which included texts that had not been read for many centuries, such as a cache of Cicero's private letters, which he discovered in Verona. Petrarch was also conscientious about organising his own writing. He arranged his sonnets in a collection known in Italian as the Canzoniere, 
collected letters he had sent over the years to friends such as Boccaccio, and made steady progress on an ambitious lyric poem collection called the Triumphs, Triumphi. This was arranged around six great themes, love, chastity, death, fame, time and eternity. And it charted the moral and spiritual course of human life all the way through to the afterlife. Thanks to the big ideas in which it dealt, its vivid depictions of suffering, struggle and celebration, and the many cameos for famous characters ranging from Old Testament patriarchs to near-contemporary figures like the Sultan Saladin. The Triumphs was very popular during the later Middle Ages and much copied, often in lavishly illustrated manuscripts. The original text of the Triumphs took Petrarch nearly 20 years to complete and he only finished it in the early 1370s. By that time, he was living in Italy, splitting his time between Padua and his nearby country retreat at Aqua. He remained in close contact with the papal court and although he did not approve of every pontiff who reigned there, he was delighted when the papacy began its return to Rome from its so-called Babylonian captivity in Avignon in 1367. Sadly, he never lived to see the full Roman restoration, for he died at his desk in Aqua the day before his 70th birthday, on the 19th of July, 1374. He was reputedly found as if asleep, with his head propped on a Virgil manuscript. Virgil was, and is, usually most closely linked with Dante, who lived a generation earlier than Petrarch. No matter. Together, Dante and Petrarch were the foremost Italian writers of the 14th century. They were the equals of their much-admired classical forebears and the giants on whose shoulders many of the greatest artists and writers of the Renaissance would stand. Looking back on Petrarch's life some 500 years after he died, a Swiss scholar called Jacob Burkhardt thought it was possible to pinpoint the exact moment when the Renaissance began. This was Saturday the 26th of April, 1326, when a young Petrarch and his brother, Gerardo, decided to climb Mount Ventoux, not far from Vaucluse, a peak of nearly 2,000 metres, today famous as one of the toughest climbs on the route of the Tour de France. According to Petrarch himself, he had been dreaming of climbing it since childhood, to see what was visible from the top. Neither the fact that it was a steep mountain with rocky and almost inaccessible cliffs, nor specific warnings to clear off given by an old shepherd could dissuade the brothers. So up they went. Obviously the climb was horrible. But they pushed through, and in the course of a difficult ascent and descent, Petrarch meditated on the writings of St. Augustine. He wrote afterwards that doing so showed him the importance of introspection and physical striving as a source of religious revelation. What could be found within, people go seeking without, he wrote. According to Burkhardt, this insight and the idea of climbing the mountain with the simple purpose of experiencing nature for its own sake would never have occurred to anyone before Petrarch's time, just as both concepts would seem entirely normal to the generations that followed him. This, claimed the historian, is what made Petrarch special. Today, not many people would agree with Burkhardt's assessment about when the Renaissance started. All the same, after Petrarch's death in 1374, there was undeniably a boom in great literature, felt in realms across the West. Boccaccio, who died in 1375, had finished his Decameron 20 years earlier. In England, the enthusiastic Italophile Geoffrey Chaucer began his Canterbury Tales around 1387 and worked on it until his own death in 1400. Chaucer also translated Petrarch's poetry into English and adapted one of his Latin stories, Griselda, as the Clark's Tale. In France, the Venetian-born poet, historian and courtier Christine de Pizan rose to prominence as a star of the French court of the mad Charles VI, where she spun a new and compelling Trojan origin story for the Frankish people and wrote what was arguably the first ever feminist history, the Book of the City of Ladies. 
a French vernacular compendium of the lives and deeds of great women throughout history. Twenty years after Christine de Pizan completed that book, Leonardo Bruni and Filelfo were at work in Italy. Not long after, probably in the 1440s, Donatello sculpted his famous Bronze of David, generally considered the first naturalistic, nude male sculpture of the Middle Ages. Not all of this was Petrarch's doing, either directly or indirectly, but taken together, it was an extraordinary scene. We shall return to Italy soon. However, before we do, we must look at another vibrant centre of artistic and creative innovation in the early 15th century, which lay north of the Alps, in Burgundy. The Duchy of Burgundy was the successor state to the vanished kingdom of the same name, which had been folded into the Frankish state in the 6th century AD. Under a family of independent-minded 15th-century dukes, it reached from the northern banks of Lake Geneva to the North Sea coast of Flanders. Its rulers had not forgotten that they might, in other circumstances, have been fully-fledged monarchs, and they sought to emphasise that in every way possible. They acted as power brokers in the final chapters of the Hundred Years' War between England and France. They took the cross and fought as crusaders against the Ottomans. But they were also generous, lavish patrons of arts and artists, and in the 15th century, their ducal court became a hub for creative geniuses from across Europe. The Good, the Bad, and the Lovely in northwest Europe, the winter of 1434-5 was bitingly cold. In England, the Thames froze all the way up to its estuary. Across Scotland, ice lay so thick that for weeks on end mill wheels stopped turning, causing mass shortages of flour and bread. And in Arras, in Flanders, where snow fell relentlessly for four months, the townsfolk built elaborate snowmen in the forms of mythical, supernatural, political and historical figures. On one street lay the seven sleepers of Ephesus. On another, frosty skeletons cavorted hideously in a danse macabre. The allegorical figure of danger guarded the entrance to the Petit Marché. And amid it all stood a snow woman, leading a small force of snow men-at-arms. She was Joan of Arc, Jeanne d'Arc and she would have been instantly recognisable to any pedestrians who scurried past her along the snowbound streets. For a brief time during the previous decade, Joan, a village girl from Domremy in the heart of Burgundian territory in eastern France, was the most famous woman in Europe. In 1425, when she was about 13, she had been visited by archangels, who told her to track down the late Charles VI's uncrowned son and heir, known as the Dauphin, and help him drive out of France the English armies that had invaded and conquered much of the northern half of the country. Amazingly, Joan had followed through with her mission, and in the late 1420s, now aged around 17, she marched alongside the Dauphin's armies as they brought the fight back to the English. Sometimes she dressed in male armour, and although she did not fight, she presented a splendid vision of God's favour, seeming to inspire victory wherever she went. In 1429 she carried a banner alongside French troops as they won the hard-pressed siege of Orléans. The next year she was at the Dauphin's side in Reims Cathedral, dressed in gleaming armour and carrying her banner, when her master was crowned as Charles VII. In May 1430, however, Joan was captured at the Siege of Compiègne. She was brought to Arras to be imprisoned. Her captor was a nobleman called Jean de Luxembourg, who had been fighting on the English side at Compiègne. He owed his allegiance to England's most important ally, Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, and through the Duke's mediation, he sold Joan to the English. One year later, during which time a church court had convicted her of heresy, Joan was burned at the stake in Rouen. The Duke of Burgundy was not in town to watch her die, but he had met with Joan while she was in prison, and although he never revealed what words passed between them, he had shown no compunction about brokering this vulnerable woman's sale to people he must have known 
would eventually kill her. Nor, as it turned out, did the Duke worry too much about his loyalty to his English allies. Indeed, in the bleak winter of 1434-5, as the late Joan was raised in snow effigy in Arras, Philip the Good was preparing to abandon the English altogether. Six months after the snows finally melted, in September 1435, Philip agreed the Treaty of Arras with Charles VII. He withdrew all his support for the English in France, repudiated the claim of the young English king Henry VI to call himself King of France, and joined a coalition of powers all vigorously hostile to England, including the kingdoms of Scotland and Castile. It was a stunning blow from which the English cause would not recover. It led eventually to their final defeat in the Hundred Years' War at the Battle of Castillon in 1453. So in the short and even the medium term, the Treaty of Arras was a potent demonstration of the power that the Duke of Burgundy could wield on the European stage. Diplomatic and military historians have spent much time analysing the terms and consequences of the Treaty of Arras. That need not concern us here. What matters is that Philip the Good was a great duke from a great line of dukes. But his ambition was to be a king. He recognised that in part the job of a great potentate was exercising political cunning and prowess in battle and ensuring that he was recognised as a genuine force in the perpetual diplomatic games contested between the European realms. Yet he was acutely aware that the perception of power went far beyond occupying ambassadors and armies. It was also a matter of ostentation and courtly spectacle. So it is no coincidence that in the 1430s Philip the Good was positioning himself carefully as more than merely a power broker. He was also carving out a role as Europe's foremost patron of the arts, who surrounded himself with a coterie of dazzling creative people. Their efforts bore testimony to the regality of this effervescent duke's rule. The greatest of all of these, a painter who was recognised even in his lifetime to have changed the course of Western art for good, was Jan van Eyck. At the time of the Treaty of Arras, van Eyck was in his mid-fifties and one of Philip's closest confidants and friends. He was born around 1390, probably in Marsique, modern Belgium. It seems likely he had an elder brother by the name of Hubert, who was also a painter, and art historians have debated at length the precise contribution of Hubert to the Van Eyck canon. What is plain is that Jan was the greater of the two by an order of magnitude. As a young man, Jan Van Eyck travelled around Flanders and the Low Countries, practising his craft, living in Liège and Ghent, and working at first on fairly conventional Gothic-influenced religious scenes showing Christ and the Virgin Mary in various episodes from the Gospels. In the early 1420s, his patron was a bishop-turned-nobleman called John the Pitiless, so called because when he put down a rebellion in Liège in 1408, he had massacred the rebels to a man. His accomplice in this unpleasant butchery was none other than Philip the Good's father, John the Fearless. But by 1425, John the Fearless and John the Pitiless had both been murdered. The Fearless was bludgeoned to death on a bridge, the Pitiless was assassinated with a poisoned prayer book. So Philip was preeminent in and around Flanders, and Van Eyck fell naturally into his orbit. From the spring of that year, he was paid 100 livres parisis, Parisian pounds, a handsome wage, to double up as Philip's valet and a sort of painter at large, attached to the ducal court but permitted to freelance outside it. The roles suited him perfectly. The ducal court Jan van Eyck had entered in 1425 was a vibrant, ostentatious, sometimes ribald place. Philip, who was about the same age as van Eyck, was a striking and charismatic figure, described by one chronicler as tall and thin, with veins that bulged all over his body. He shared his family's characteristic aquiline nose, along with a sun-browned face and bushy eyebrows which stood out like horns when he was angry. A portrait, 
by Van Eyck's great contemporary, Rockier van der Weyden, confirms the description. It also backs the chronicler's claim that the Duke dressed smartly but in rich array. In van der Weyden's portrait, Philip wears a luxurious black gown, the fine jewelled collar of his chivalric Order of the Golden Fleece, and a huge black turban-like chaperon on his head. Van Eyck must have come quickly to realise that this striking nobleman combined conventional piety with extravagant excess. The Duke heard mass every day, but had papal dispensation to do so between 2pm and 3pm instead of in the morning, since he liked to feast, drink, dance and party at night, sometimes until dawn, and rose so late that official visitors might be turned away if they showed up while he was still sleeping off the fun. He had impeccable manners, particularly towards women, whom he said were almost invariably the real rulers of their houses and needed to be charmed. But in addition to three wives, he accrued between twenty and thirty-three mistresses and fathered at least eleven illegitimate children. The Duke also had a remarkably surreal and even slapstick sense of humour. He signed off his private letters with the phrase, Farewell, turd and he paid one of Van Eyck's artist colleagues at court £1,000 to fit out rooms in his castle of Hesdang with practical jokes and booby traps, statues that squirted water at passing courtiers, a boxing glove contrivance in one doorway which buffets anyone who passes through well and truly on the head and shoulders, further water jets hidden in the floor to spray up ladies' skirts, and a room that held a speaking wooden hermit a rain machine in the ceiling to spray fake thunderstorms on visitors, and a phony rain shelter with a false floor so that those trying to escape the wet would be dunked into a large sack of feathers. These contraptions spoke to the Duke's zany, slightly cruel streak, but they also sprang from Philip's boundless love of invention and artistry. He spent fortunes on tapestries, elaborately decorated religious vestments, jewelled reliquaries, and exquisite illuminated manuscripts. He employed musicians, painters, goldsmiths, writers and other craftsmen on a greater scale than any ruler of his day outside Italy. To inspect his jewellery collection alone was said by its keeper to be a three-day job. And of course he hired Van Eyck, who blossomed under his patronage, becoming what the 16th century writer Giorgio Vasari called an artistic alchemist the man who effectively invented oil painting. Van Eyck did not spend all his time with Duke Philip. He had a contract that did not require him to live at court, but allowed him to work in his own studio, where Philip occasionally dropped in. However, they were together on many important occasions, for Van Eyck's work was bound up with Philip's political ambition, and the Duke trusted him deeply. From the beginning of his employment, Van Eyck was used as a diplomat for sensitive embassies. In 1426, he was sent on a mission listed in the Duke's records as a pilgrimage, possibly a quiet fact-finding mission to Aragon to sound out King Alfonso V about a marriage alliance and send back portraits of potential brides. He certainly attended a covert mission of this sort to Portugal in 1428, a journey that secured the 30-year-old Infanta of Portugal, Isabella, as Philip's third wife. At the Portuguese court, Van Eyck probably painted two canvas portraits of the Infanta, which were sent to Burgundy so that the Duke could decide whether or not he fancied her. Evidently, Van Eyck did his job well, for the couple were ultimately married, and his good service earned him not only handsome bonus payments, but Philip's friendship and admiration. By the time of the Treaty of Arras in 1435, Philip had stood as godfather to Van Eyck and his wife Margaret's first child, and given the painter a 700% pay rise, a raise, Philip told his vexed accountants, was fully justified, since we would not find another so much to our liking, nor so excellent in his art and science. Such was the power of the man with the brush. And sure enough, by this stage, secure with Philip's backing, Van Eyck was reaching the peak of his talent. A likely self-portrait, which hangs in the National Gallery in London, shows a somewhat stern-faced, middle-aged man 
in an elaborate red chaperon. It is an absorbingly lifelike feat of oil painting, electrifying in its use of light and shade to accentuate the drawn skin, the lines on the sitter's face, and the glint that dances behind his eyes. But in its day it was revolutionary. Van Eyck came of age at a moment when the flat, idealised or iconic forms of human portraiture that characterised most medieval art had begun to give way to this far more lifelike style of work, alive with depth and rich colour. Just as Petrarch had used poetry to shine a light on the soul, so painters of the 15th century were attempting to capture inner truth, the essence of the individual, through portraiture. By the 1430s, Van Eyck was pushing this trend to new heights with every painting. Much of Van Eyck's gift lay in his acute gaze, his extraordinary command of the brush, his understanding of how to deploy colour, his love for tiny detail and his peerless hand-to-eye coordination. But he had also made a technical leap forward. Van Eyck discovered how to dilute oil paint with other essential oils producing a medium that was exceptionally fluid and subtle, and which allowed the artist to capture in his sitter's faces individual hairs, tiny pimples, broken capillaries, and chapped lips. Van Eyck could now render perfectly the fleeting glint of a jewel. He could mimic the way light fell across the folds of clothes. He could capture the craters of the moon. He could freeze a swallow turning on its wing in a distant part of the sky and fix exactly the way that sunlight fell across the gracefully drooping petals of an iris flower. He could recreate the cold horror of daylight reflecting off the curvature of a knight's bloodied plate armour, while capturing at the same time the brutalised thousand-yard stare in the eyes of its wearer. It was with good reason that Van Eyck's contemporary, the Italian humanist writer Bartolomeo Fazio, called him the most prominent painter of his age, and argued that his work deserved to be considered alongside literature as a rarefied art form, and a work of an illustrious sort of man. Van Eyck was simply a technical genius, and by 1434-5 he had completed two of the greatest paintings of his age. In 1432, Van Eyck finished a 20-part altarpiece for the Cathedral of St. Bavo in Ghent, modern Belgium. Known as a polyptic, a multi-panelled, double-sided work, the Ghent altarpiece may have begun as a collaborative piece with Jan's brother Hubert, but the pedantic historical debate over who did what pales into irrelevance against the majesty of the work as a whole. At the heart of it sat a panel known as the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb, in which angels, bishops, saints, kings, queens, ladies, soldiers, merchants and hermits are gathered around an altar on which the Lamb of God stands bleeding from a wound in its breast into a golden chalice. In the upper panels, Christ sits enthroned and glorious, surrounded by the Virgin Mary, John the Baptist, and angels singing or playing musical instruments. On either wing of the altarpiece stand Adam and Eve, naked but for their fig leaves, and in Eve's case, coyly but inadequately trying to hide what is sometimes cited as the first known medieval depiction of pubic hair. On the back panels of the polyptic, which would be visible when the hinged altarpiece was closed, Van Eyck painted scenes of the Annunciation, images of St John the Baptist and St John the Evangelist, and pictures of Joost Vett, the mayor of Ghent, and his wife Lisbeth, who had ordered the altarpiece in the first place. Shortly after completing the Ghent altarpiece, Van Eyck worked on another very different masterpiece, the Arnolfini portrait. This is a picture of the Italian merchant Giovanni Arnolfini, a cloth weaver who traded between Lucca and Bruges, and his young wife. The couple stand hand in hand in a bedroom illuminated by a single candle, their shoes strewn about the floor and a cheeky little brown lapdog posing between their feet. Beautifully and somewhat eerily, a mirror on the wall reflects two other people in the room, standing where we presume the artist ought to be. Through the mirror, the room is warped and elongated, telescoping the semblance of depth perspective in the painting, while setting it at odds with the direction of every other significant line in the portrait, 
which run vertically. Beyond the geometric expertise at play in the image and its exquisite attention to near-microscopic detail, the Arnolfini portrait is a masterpiece of humanist art. The merchant's squint makes it impossible to quite catch his eye, while the burden of time weighing on two partners who seem to be different in age and background is worn plainly on their faces. Between them, the Ghent altarpiece and Arnolfini portrait confirmed Van Eyck as the most accomplished painter of his day. Curiously, neither was commissioned by Philip the Good, the patron who paid Van Eyck such a fortune. Yet they were connected to the court all the same. Ghent was a Burgundian-controlled town, and its municipal glory reflected back on the Duke. Meanwhile, Arnolfini had helped Philip the Good enhance Burgundy's prestige at the papal court in the 1420s by supplying him with six fine tapestries to send to Pope Martin V as a gift. It may be that Philip was prepared to retain Van Eyck at such huge expense precisely because the latter could take his pick of patrons across Europe. For the Duke, who amassed fine things at a pace and volume matched by few, if any, other magnates in the West, being associated with this virtuoso artist and knowing no one else could claim overall patron status was enough. Throughout the late 1430s, he continued to pay Van Eyck his large fee to represent Burgundy and sent him on more diplomatic embassies where his brush as well as his eyes might be needed. The deal seemed to be that other patrons were welcome to hire Van Eyck, and they did so. The lugubrious Burgundian ambassador to England, Baldwin de Lannoy, was one. The wealthy, Bruges-based goldsmith, Jan de Leo, another. But they could never have him all to themselves. Van Eyck died in 1441 while he was working on a painting known as the Madonna of the Provost van Malbec, commissioned for display in a monastery in Ypres, and today known only in replica. He was buried twice, first in the churchyard and later inside the cathedral church of saint Donatian in Bruges, which no longer stands, having been destroyed after the French Revolution. His association with Philip the Good's court had lasted for 16 years, and although he produced most of his best works for other clients, he would forever be linked with Burgundy. Van Eyck was remembered in courts all across Europe as an exquisite master in the art of painting, while other artists, even Italians, would travel hundreds of miles to the Burgundian-controlled towns of Flanders and the Low Countries to study his work, hoping to learn how to recreate his greatest tricks. This was, in the end, why Philip the Good had hired him. He put Burgundy on the map in just as powerful a fashion as any amount of underhand politicking or double-dealing between the English and Armagnacs could do. Philip outlived his finest artist by two and a half decades, dying at the age of 70 in 1467. By the end of the 15th century, his descendants had proven unable to transform Burgundy into a kingdom, nor even to maintain it as an independent state. In the 1490s, Burgundy was split up, and much of its territory rolled into what would become the Habsburg Holy Roman Empire. But the reputation of this fleeting, European half-realm for punching far above its weight as a cultural force would endure for centuries afterwards, and Philip's model of accruing magnificence through patronage was now widespread. <laughs>